Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Rob Wolf with a new episode of New Books in Science Fiction. This is the Gotterdammerung episode. I'm thrilled to have with me one of the most loved and respected and prolific writers of science fiction. Kim Stanley Robinson is the author of 20 novels, and his books have earned all the big prizes in science fiction. Think of all the superlative words attached to writers like foremost and legendary and best-selling and award-winning. They all fit Kim Stanley Robinson. Today, we're going to be talking about his newest novel, The Ministry for the Future, which came out in October. It's a sweeping novel about climate change and its devastating consequences and the many ways, uh, from economic to scientific to military, that humans can possibly just maybe slow, stop, or even possibly reverse it. A, a very hearty welcome to you, Stan. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's good to be with you. The book opens with a heat wave in the Indian province of Uttar Pradesh, and we see it unfold through the eyes of a Western aid worker, Frank May. Could you talk about what happens, what this disaster is, and how it sets the story in motion? Sure. A scary start for me, and I'm sure for readers. I began to read about wet bulb temperatures, which is just a heat index that combines heat and humidity. So everybody who watches weather channels is already familiar with heat indexes, and everybody who lives in humid areas knows about the heat and humidity in combination. And I have to add that there's been discussion amongst a certain portion of the people trying to think about climate change, that maybe we just have to adapt to quite higher global average temperatures and that humans are smart and we'll just adapt. And they weren't so worried about crossing the two degrees centigrade Celsius rise in global average temperature and all that. We'll go to three, we'll go to four, we'll just adapt. But the problem is this wet bulb 35 is only about 95 degrees Fahrenheit plus 100% humidity and human bodies can't deal, they die you would have to be in air conditioning. And in heat waves like that, power systems and grids often fail, in which case there would be mass deaths. And there's been wet bulb 34s all over the the tropics and even in the Chicago area. And a few wet bulb 35s have already been seen for an hour or two across the globe. They're going to be more and more common. What it suggested to me was that we can't actually adapt to a, a three or four degree average rise because we'll be getting these heat waves that will be deadly and power grids will fail and millions will die. And and the the Gangetic Plain is one area that's susceptible, but so is Indonesia, South China, the Southeast United States. And it's it's really huge populations that are uh, living in areas that might become deadly by way of heat waves. So I thought, well, okay, let's follow that thought. 
into a novel where one of these happens and everything gets radicalized, everything goes crazy, what would that look like? And can I, and can I start from that and actually 30 years later come to a better place? So that was my goal in this novel. The scene with Frank, he's basically the only survivor of this particular inciting. Well, in, in, this is the inciting incident for the novel. Yep. And as you say, for a lot of the actions that then take place. Let me ask about the Ministry for the Future. That was a body that was created. I guess that's really the nickname for this this particular agency, but it was created by the signatories to the Paris Climate Agreement. And you place it in our very near future that it gets created in 2025. And its mandate is actually quite inspiring, I thought. It's to defend all living creatures, present and future, who cannot speak for themselves by promoting their legal standing and physical protection. Uh, and when at first, when I read that, I thought, well, don't all governments do that? Shouldn't they be protecting all living creatures? And then, you know, you think about it and go, well, actually, no, I guess they don't really do that. And they certainly don't seem to think very much about the future. So I wondered if you could talk about the idea, the mandate for this particular ministry. You know, where did this idea come from? Does anything like that exist now? And why did you decide to make that the focus of your book? Well, as a science fiction writer, it's it's more or less a habit of thought to think about, well, well, how will this impact people in the future? That's how science fiction story ideas often originate, and I've been doing it now my whole career. And then the Paris Agreement is a very important agreement. Every nation on Earth signed it, which is a remarkable statement to make for anything. And, and now that uh, Biden is going to become president on January 20th or whenever, then we are uh, sticking with the the climate agreement, one of the best parts of this election result. Because although the Paris Agreement could, over the next 10, 20 years, turn into something like the League of Nations, which is to say a great idea that failed, that would be disastrous for the biosphere and for humanity. Uh, Really, the Paris Agreement has to succeed as a a way to uh, organize our efforts internationally to combat climate change. So what's cool is that that agreement already has, it's, it's quite an interesting document. I read it in full. It's not that long of a document, very legalese, very diplomatic language, treaty language, but clear enough for all that. And it's, there are statements in there that are focused on equity between uh, rich nations and developing nations, et cetera, that were fought over viciously, or you would say maybe enthusiastically by the various parties to the agreement. Every phrase was uh, fought over. And there's room for making new subcommittees that are even permanent standing committees to do stuff that isn't happening uh, already. And there's also a a clause that says that every five years we'll have a global stock take and see how well we're doing compared to what we had committed to do back in 2015. And the first global stock take, or maybe it's the second, is coming up in, it's scheduled for like 2023 or whatever. So I postulated that at that time they saw that they weren't meeting their obligations, which I think is going to happen even with the pandemic, although the pandemic does change things in terms of carbon burn. But even so, I thought at that point, especially if there'd been this horrid heat wave, that they would make a standing subcommittee that gets nicknamed the Ministry for the Future. And on it goes from there with the idea that this little UN committee or ministry 
be like World Health Organization or the Red Cross. I mean, these things are not changers of world history. And so my little organization is uh, tasked with a mighty task. And to get to the other part of your question, there are precursors. Ecuador's constitution protects its forest. Its forest is a citizen with rights. The government of Wales has a ministry for the future that is uh, charged with defending Welsh people of the future in the current legal regime. And, And what these organizations get is legal standing which is very important. If you're going to bring a case to, say, the World Court or any court, what's your standing? And what they mean by that is, do you have a stake in this that justifies you coming to the court and bothering us with your case, especially in civil court, where you bring it voluntarily? Well, if you don't have standing, the court just throws you out. And what something like these legal motions and movements do is... Some people talk about this as the umbrella of human protection, like, say, ancient Greek times. Well, democracy, except only for uh, property-owning men. Women weren't included. Slaves weren't included. Children weren't included. Over historical times since then, the the long arc bending towards justice, you know, um, the umbrella of legal protection has extended outward bigger and bigger. And so the next step would be animals and then plants maybe, and also peoples of the future, watersheds, et cetera, biomes. And so following that logic as a science fiction writer, that led me to this idea of the ministry, which starts out toothless, but is desperately desiring to do more than the usual little UN things. Well, that's a perfect uh, segue to talk a little bit more, go a little bit deeper about the mission or the strategies that the Ministry for the Future applies. And you have in the story the guy who was at the very beginning, Frank May, encountering Mary Murphy, who is the head of the Ministry for the Future. And his message to her is basically, you know, you need to be more radical in what you're doing. You can't do what you just referenced, kind of business as usual uh, slow-moving, incremental change. And he presents as someone who's in so much pain and so much trauma, having experienced so much trauma from having witnessed thousands of people die because of this incredible heat wave, that I have to think of him as more than just, you know, this, as a man. It's like he's really, he seems to me to be speaking for the entire earth, you know, that he's he's damaged like the earth is, and he's basically almost like crying out in pain, asking for something to be done, you know, giving voice to something that doesn't have a voice. And you actually do a lot of that in the book. I wanted to ask you about that, too, where you animate history and carbon atom and such. But maybe that'll be the next question. So can we talk a little bit more about Frank and what he what he represents? What's he giving voice to when he when he demands, basically, that Mary Murphy do more? Well, thanks for that, because it goes right to the crux. And really, the the big scene of the novel, aside from the opening scene, would be when Frank basically kidnaps Mary in order to shout in her face and tell her she's not doing enough and that her agency isn't doing enough. And he's got post-traumatic stress disorder. And now that is really a big thing in our world. And I want to say that it's sort of as the effect of our time that we all are eventually post-traumatic, that being human means trauma. And some are unfortunately burdened with more trauma than others, but every human's going to experience trauma. 
So PTSD, the stress disorder, where your life gets taken over by an inability to cope with trauma, that's interesting and and a troublesome and painful psychological state that wrecks lives. We know this. We, we talk about it a lot in America because of our veterans of wars. And Frank is a veteran of catastrophe. And so he's with his PTSD, his life is um, in some sense is ruined, but he's also on a mission. And so he stands for all of that, uh, both an individual that he, he thinks that he may be cheated to get out of that heat wave alive and that he had a supply of cool water and nobody else did and he didn't share it and so he's got guilt as well as PTSD and he wants to do something and then when we talk about uh, now institutional violence I think we're much better at talking about this now in 2020 than we've ever been before Uh, slow violence institutional violence systemic racism systemic uh, injustice and so slow violence when that turns fast, when slow violence turns fast, is a, an interesting crux moment where you can actually write novel scenes about these moments where, uh, that are easier to write than the daily slow violence. I like to write about, try to write about both, uh, but for sure what Frank is insisting on is that the violence that is in systemic in our system that hurts poor people, people of color, marginalized, and the precariat, which means almost everybody. Uh, Maybe if people talk about the 1%, I think that's very valid, but you could also talk about the top 10% being pretty comfy worldwide. But the other 90% are in the precariat or immiserated. And what Frank is saying is there's maybe justifiable violence like the maybe the war against fascism. Resistance to violence is, uh, can become violent, but maybe it's necessary because of the amount of death and destruction that's being wreaked by slow violence. So this is what Frank brings up to Mary, and she's very troubled by it because I have her being Irish. The Irish know better than anybody that uh, violence begets violence, and you get civil war, and you get mass death to no purpose and, and permanent bitterness, and that Ireland suffered from its own internal civil war. So she's not in favor of that. She believes in the rule of law and changing laws. I can sort of say that I'm with Mary, but that I'm aware that there's a whole world that is, is like Frank or they or Frank has seen a world that Mary hasn't quite seen. So the novel is, is, is a teeter-tottering back and forth on that, on that horrible question. You know, when is violence justified? It's a book full of ideas, and there are so many strategies that people start to deploy. There's the, the government-sponsored solutions, where a government like India, say, decides to, I may not be describing this exactly correctly, but they seed the clouds to try to simulate the effect of a major volcanic explosion and thus uh, sort of dim, block out the sun for a couple of years to lower worldwide temperatures. So that would be their initiative against... even though other governments oppose them. And then there are international efforts where they're all working together, like the central banks coordinate a response. And then there's this other thing that you've referred to, this violence, this this terrorist efforts, these black ops efforts. And Mm -hmm. they all seem to be working together, actually. It's like they're not at cross purposes. They all kind of have the same goal. And it's almost as if they complement each other in some ways. I don't know if that's 
if that was what you were trying to convey, but it was it almost felt like one wouldn't work without the other. You sort of had to try it from all these different angles. Well, that's interesting. I recognize that as a description of what happens in the book. And I'm I'm pondering that, thinking about it. I guess I'd say all I think all these things are going to happen and it's gonna be a mess. And I would prefer that the people of the world, especially in the developed world, seeing this kind of a future coming down on them would make the changes legally in advance of the of the coming violence and and uh, resistance and terrorism, however you want to describe it, for sure violence. It, once you once you put a different word on that violence, it can be valorizing like resistance, or it can be demonizing like terrorism. So it's hard to know what words to use there. But better to avoid that entirely by making the changes preemptively ahead of that bad future. And the truth is that I, for this book, I was thinking of let's portray a best case scenario that people can still believe in. So it wasn't going to be rose-tinted glasses, but it wasn't going to be doom and gloom either. But more, uh, I, I mean, I think it's obvious that my intent was to show things turning out where 30 years down the line, we can say, oh my gosh, we might not have a mass extinction event. We might have been lowering uh, now carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We might be lowering world human population. We might be saving the animals. We might have dodged the mass extinction event. And I want people to believe that that could happen, but I do think that it's going to be a complete mess in terms of how it happens because people don't like to agree. And there are many people who flatly uh, disbelieve in either the problem or the potential solutions. So it isn't like this is going to be uh, a, any kind of kumbaya future that we're entering into. And yet a good outcome, a good Anthropocene could be achieved. And that's what I wanted to describe in the most realistic way I can think of. So what I was doing, and I, I guess what I want to say is that, um, you know, this is a novel. And so a novel you read for fun. I read novels compulsively myself. I'm a reader first and a writer second. And I read for fun, but fun can come from strange kind of, you know, stories. It, it fun doesn't always mean fun in games. Fun can be challenging and uh, sometimes even upsetting or disturbing. And so the fun in this novel is that other thing you're talking about, the points of view, the, the game of forms and styles and genres that um, there's 106 chapters in this book. And as you turn the page and see a new chapter, you have no idea what's coming next. No idea. And that's on purpose. And that is where maybe some of the fun resides in reading this thing as a novel is the game of having so many voices chiming in, like some kind of weird avant-garde choir that includes, you know, screeching nails on blackboard as well as beautiful voices, et cetera. So that was what I, that was my solution to the problem that I set myself. The problem being how to grapple with such a big issue that has so many moving parts? Yeah, exactly. 30 years of world history. I mean, the novel is basically set to human space and time, like the biography or a few years in someone's life. I, I mean, I believe the novel can do anything. And I've already traversed huge stretches of, of time and space in novels before. So I'm confident in the novel. But I do think that it's, this is a particularly weird assignment that I gave myself. And I had to find the form that would, would, would suit the content. Well, yeah, let's talk just a little bit more about some of the less traditional 
chapters, I suppose. I mean, in some ways, I thought of, you know, it's a very sweeping book and it's very ambitious. And I thought of Moby Dick, actually. Uh, to be honest, I've never read it all the way through because of those chapters that go off into the species of whales and the nitty gritty of whaling. And, mm -hmm. you know, you have these chapters that, you know, some are very short, just like a paragraph or two. And they're from the perspective of an atom or from there's one that's a, <laughs> from the perspective of history, like history with a capital H. You know, I am history. Uh, uh -huh. There's there's one that's from the perspective of blockchain. Uh -huh. blockchain plays a role in one of the government international responses. So why did you want to give voice to these normally voiceless things? Well, thank you for that. Um, first, Moby Dick. I love Moby Dick. And because it's an example of the novel as a, a crazy grab bag of different kinds of narratives, including plays and these essays that you talk about. And I actually, when I'm at my wife's uh, family place on the coast of Maine, I always read Moby Dick, and when I finish, I start it again. And what we have to understand is that the plot of Moby Dick could be written on the back of an envelope and is almost irrelevant. And it's these other pieces that are like prose poems that are little philosophical meditations, very often based on inaccurate descriptions of the whale. It couldn't be weirder. Like, I would not have brought up Moby Dick because, A, it sounds pretentious because it's often talked about as the great American novel and you shouldn't ought to be comparing yourself to it. And, B, most people hate it because they were told to read it in high school and it's so weird that it's impossible to understand. So it's a losing game to bring up Moby Dick, and yet I'm glad you did because it is – my novel is similar to that in that it has this grab bag of different kinds of forms to make a larger effect. And now as to the forms – one of the things that I love is Anglo-Saxon literature, although I don't like Beowulf, but, and that's half of Anglo-Saxon literature right there, but the rest of it I quite love. It's mostly poetry, and about a third of what we've got out of Anglo-Saxon are riddles, and the riddles as published in Anglo-Saxon don't have their answers, and scholars still argue over the uh, answers to some of these riddles, which are for sure 2,000 years old, but maybe they're more like 50,000 years old. And I've read scholars arguing about one Anglo-Saxon riddle. Is it a, was it a grasshopper or was it an angel as the answer? And, and some of the, many of these riddles are supposed to have puns where there are two answers, one of them often obscene and then the other one very bland. And I thought, well, that's a great form and riddles would be great. And then in the 18th century, there was a thing called the it narrative, the story of a coin, the story of a fiddle, the story of um, some inanimate object that in first person tells their own story. And very often it'd be in the 18th century, they would get eaten and then they would get uh, excreted later on. And it was a great adventure to go through someone's digestive system. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I think that genre died because there's not much to it. <laughs> but but uh, recently, this is kind of Bruno Latour, uh, actor network theory out of science studies. Actor network theory is the idea that things happen in history because of actor networks and that some of the actors are inanimate are, and even non-sentient. Like, say, Pasteur's actor network includes the penicillin bacterium or or bacteria, and the John Muir's actor network includes the Sierra Nevada of California. So you see actor network theory. What I thought was, I'll, I'll pick some of the important actors in this actor network that we're all in together, 
and let them tell their story, sometimes as a riddle, sometimes as a narrative, whatever. I, I was fooling around. For me, one of the pleasures of this book, since it was so grim in so many ways, so scary, was to make it fun on a formal level of let's tell a different kind of story here and entertain myself and hope to entertain the reader as well. So that's how I got into this game of the forms. And I, I liked my dialogues between the, the, well, this is sort of like what we're doing, except the dialogues are between a very smooth host who's like maybe a BBC type host and a very grumpy guest who is outrageously rude to the host and to the, everybody. Well, this is actually what happened on the BBC when George Orwell was the host and William Empson, famous literary critic, was the guest. So I have those dialogues also, and I have three or four other kinds of forms, particularly the eyewitness account. You know, I was there, I saw this moment, which is maybe the chief one of them all in my book, I mean. Right, and there's meeting notes. Oh, yeah, there's, yeah, that's right. There's all these forms, some by which we familiarly communicate. People know what meeting notes are and they know traditional narrative and they know first person narratives, although I've never heard of it narrative. I love your description of it. Mm -hmm. There's this sense by doing what you've done that it's sort of like we're all in this together. Like we have to think of the earth as not this object that is that we do to, but that we are co-equals with and all these other things too. And we have to, we, we have to work together and not take that classic Ayn Rand man as superior creature who can manipulate the natural world and the physical world, but has to be more respectful of it. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I like that description of it. And we are, that's a, I mean, that's good. Like we're a choir together that we're singing some weird symphony and that it's fun to have a carbon atom telling its part of the story because we are made of carbon and we're organized like we're whirlpools or, or uh, dust devils of carbon that are going to fall apart eventually. It's fun to have all the acting parts speak like that. And then, you know, it isn't just Anne Rand. It's, it's a whole of my friend Tobias Menley, a, a, a writer here at UC Davis uh, on Anthropocene wilderness. He's very good on this, that in the when we were burning fossil fuels, we could imagine that we would just transcend the earth and use it like a tool, that humanity was some kind of godlike power. This is partly a fossil fuel delusion that we're crashing to ground because it isn't quite true. And it's fun to tell the story of the whole earth biosphere being a big kind of Gaia-like um, thing that we're part of. And so it isn't just Anne Rand, but even, I mean, as a Marxist, I have to, or a Marxian, I'd have to say that, that Marx himself, Marx and Engels were a little too, science will conquer all, wrest freedom from the realm of necessity as if we were just completely going to turn into gods on earth. And it isn't so. So reconciling ourselves to our more limited powers. I mean, we are indeed extremely powerful. It isn't like we couldn't get into a good rhythm with the biosphere, but we aren't as gods that can just thromp around and, and trash the biosphere and get away with it. So we're in that, I think that's what the Anthropocene means, is that we're in that moment when we are confronted with our own limitations. So we got huge powers, but they're still limited. Some of the solutions that your characters posit and try to pursue do require, I mean, they're very ambitious and they do require almost a godlike vision. I mean, they're they're very they're they they're big, and so I wondered 
if you if we could just talk about one of them, and I almost don't care which one because they're all fascinating. So I, I wonder which one fascinates you. I mean, the carbon coin or the way they were pumping water from under glaciers to stop them from slipping. I mean, there's so many ideas in there. And yeah. if, if I'd say maybe I could phrase it this way. If there was one idea that you could make happen, start happening tomorrow, which one would you like to see uh, enacted first? Well, that's a good way to put it. But that forces me to go to one that I don't want to talk about as much as another one. So what I would say is the, the carbon coin, uh, carbon quantitative easing that the central banks of all the big governments of the world got to start making new money as they did in the quantitative easings of 2008 and of 2020 for the pandemic. You make up a few billion trillion new dollars, inject them into the system, but not giving them to the private banks to blow it in their usual bad way, but giving them to carbon reduction efforts first, that you deliberately create money to pay for the Green New Deal type projects and, and get ourselves out of it. That's really what we need. We need it so badly. And it, and it springs everything else. All the other efforts need to be paid for. And then you've got the money and the money pays for the labor and you get things done. None of these ideas are mine, but that one in particular is getting good traction in the what you could call political economy realm, or even in the finance realm, carbon quantitative easing, CQE. If you Google it, you see good things. But the one that I love comes out of my friends from Antarctica that are glaciologists. And so the glaciers are sliding down into the sea, they're melting there, and sea level is going to rise, and all the coastlines of the world are screwed. And I grew up on beaches and was a body surfer and a beach kid. It's, I mean, it's very boring. Beach Boys, 1965, you know, Southern California beach boy, blonde kid out in the waves. And the beaches are just a beautiful culture and not just stupid USA 1950s stuff, but also worldwide beach cultures have always been a very beautiful world culture in their different forms. Well, the beaches are doomed. And so glaciologists in Antarctica said to me, oh, Stan, you know, you can't pump that seawater back up on top of Antarctica, which was my brilliant idea, totally impossible. It's too much water. But if you suck the water from the bottom of the glaciers, they thump back down on the rock. They slow back down to their originary speeds. And we don't have this massive sea level rise coming down on us. And it's a, it's a manageable amount of water. And it's a drilling technology that they already use down there. So I'm like, well, why haven't you told everybody? And they said, um, well, we don't like geoengineering. If if you get tagged as a geoengineer in this world, you got rocks thrown through your window, you got really bad emails, and people hate you on Twitter, and and you can't do your ordinary science. And these glaciologists like to spend their time on ice in Antarctica, so they aren't exactly the most, you know, sociable of creatures a lot of times. And so they said, Stan, this is your job. You tell the story and then we will get our idea out there, but not get tagged as geoengineers and have our careers trashed by it. And I actually did an event for this book with Michael E. Mann, who is a climatologist at Penn State, which is a big glaciology center. But his work has been on climate and he's had his whole career severely torqued by attacks from the right because he did the hockey the hockey stick curve showing that if we continue to burn carbon, we've got these extreme temperatures. He's, he's been in court half of his scientific career and his entire career has been devoted. It's good work. He's an important public intellectual, but it isn't like he's gotten to 
pursue his own personal interests. He's had to become a public intellectual. And a lot of these glaciologists, it's the last thing they want to do. So that became my favorite part because I've been to Antarctica twice. I've loved it. I would go back. I hope to go back. It's a little mysterious to describe why it's so lovable because for sure it's cold and, you know, it's, it's Antarctica. But I did love it. And so that part of my story, but that was another thing that was fun for me was to describe that aspect of the story. And indeed, I mean, I'm, I'm leaving it out there for other glaciologists and, and to comment on, could that plan work? Is that a viable um, plan for saving us from rapid sea level rise? Well, I hope so, personally. I took the title of this episode from your description of the Götterdämmerung syndrome, uh, which mm-hmm. you describe as when people respond to the collapse of the biosphere by trying to actually hasten it rather than prevent it. It's sort of like, well, if I'm going to lose, everyone gets screwed. It's sort of a selfish, narcissistic impulse. And yeah, yeah. the way you described it made me think of really what's been going on the last four years. I mean, I don't know, the last decades, but the more awareness we have about the impact our actions have on the environment, the last four years in particular really struck me as very Gotterdämmerung, which is the the policies that have been coming out of Washington. There seems to be this determined effort to tear down what few structures were already in place to protect the environment. And it seems to be happening even now at greater speed as we speed towards January 20th. Yeah. And so I just wonder what you make of it, whether it's that specifically, you know, what's going on here or just where we are at this precise moment. People have said again and again, you know, we're at a turning point, you know, we'll be at the point of no return. We've heard that, though, for a number of years. And yes, it seems fairly obviously that things are getting worse. But what, what would you say about the urgency of the moment? It, it is urgent, but I also want to make the very strong point that it's never game over and it was never going to be too late to start doing the right things. It's always going to be a case of it's, it'll be better or worse, but it's never going to be doom or the end because uh, life is so robust that even if human beings completely screw themselves up and cause a mass extinction event, life will go on and will rebound accordingly so it's important to stay away from doomism, which is a great point that Michael Mann is making these days. And to say that these last four years and the whole effort from the right, it is the Gertrude Damarung in this sense that if I have to choose between admitting that I was wrong and then we've got a problem and that we need to address it and blowing up the world, well, of course I'll blow up the world because I can't possibly admit that I'm wrong. And everybody's a little like this, but I mean, every time I see even an SUV driving by on the freeway, which, of course, in California and across the American West, you see as many SUVs and pickup trucks as you see economy cars. Everybody who buys one of those is basically making a kind of a a Republican gesture, a, a gesture of disdain for the idea that it matters how much carbon we're burning. There's a little bit of Gertrude Damerung in in our whole American culture. So when you live in American culture, it's like it's like white supremacy. It's like any other inequitable system that continues on that a lot of us benefit from. What's interesting is to try to admit that and then change your ways and then find out that life gets more interesting rather than less. So in other words, 
anti-dystopia or resisting the Gerda Damerung and trying to get stylish, suddenly um, the world gets more lively. You're not so cocooned in crap. It's not a matter of saintly renunciation. It's actually more a matter of stylish innovation to the realities of the situation. And you, you begin to realize really simple things like going for a walk or throwing rocks at a bottle on a post or sitting across from somebody drinking a cup of tea together and chatting face to face. Actually, the pandemic has been very good at reminding us of some of this, that these things are more fun than dropping out of a helicopter to ski down some uh, slope in the British Columbia, et cetera, et cetera. The, the carbon burn was bullshit. And America is, is, is usually involved in that. It's like lighting up your cigars with $100 bills and laughing at the poor people. This is, this is all part of Gurdur Damarang psychology. And it's very interesting to step back from that and say, mm, I could calculate my carbon burned like I could get on a scale and weigh myself. And then, oh my God, I'm, I'm kind of obese. And so therefore I'm in poor health and I, and I feel shitty. And then when you, you know, lose weight or you lose carbon burn and suddenly weather hits you in the face and uh, you begin to feel kind of smart or you get really scared because you realize that food doesn't grow out of the ground very uh, naturally, that it's all very highly leveraged and artificial and scary. Uh, um, the world just gets more lively when you get out of the, the cocoon of crap that we're in here. So especially the young people, I'm always trying to emphasize that it's not like we were having fun back in the 60s, which we were, but, but in the carbon burn years, and that now you've got to suffer and live like saints forever. It's actually, we were obese and hurting and stupid, and now you could be smart and stylish and clever and have more fun. And that, I think, needs to be said to young people because uh, because they're coming into a completely different world. These next 30 years are going to be completely different. That makes wonderful sense. But when you think about what people say about the developing world and how we use the carbon burn supposedly to improve our lifestyle and our quality of life, and so why shouldn't they be able to do that? I mean, you did make the point about the Paris agreement that it tried to be equitable. But I wonder, can you say the same thing to some of these nations that maybe, you know, are still developing and want to have their chance to drive around in SUVs before they have to go to compact cars? Well, I bet they don't give a shit about SUV versus compact cars. I, what they want and what everybody should have is food, water, shelter, clothing, health care, and education at adequacy for everybody. And that we don't have yet. We have immiseration. We have at least 2 billion people without toilets, clean water, and food security out of, out of uh, 8 billion people. This is a stupendous percentage. And when the UN set up the millennial goals in 2000, said, let's bring the most suffering humans out of that intensely immiserated poverty. They've made huge strides None of it had anything to do with capitalism or with neoliberal capitalism. In other words, it, it didn't make a profit. It was done on the margin by way of public funding and charity money, et cetera, et cetera. And huge strides were made. If it were the goal of human civilization to eradicate poverty and give that minimum food, water, shelter, clothing, healthcare, education to all of us equally, it could be done. So the developing world, I think, is, I mean, they're imitating, like in China's case, for instance, it's glorious to get rich, said uh, Deng Xiaoping. 
and he was a very smart leader and uh, and by feeling the stones as he crossed the river he basically introduced all kinds of capitalist habits into the hardcore socialism that existed beforehand to get more rapid improvements by imitating the West. But at a certain point, he got the same amount of inequality in China as anywhere else. So in the larger world picture, if you talk about equity, the developing world needs clean energy and then good sanitation, clean water, these things established, you could then begin to play the game of how how much luxury do you need in life compared to adequacy? Is adequacy maybe the ultimate happiness anyway, beyond which you get into illness and uh, excess? So yeah, you, um, you know, this is why clean energy is, is crucial. This is why carbon quantitative easing to pay for that effort of installing clean energy and getting away from carbon the developing world is owed a lot because they were thrashed by Europe and by America. They were exploited. They were ripped off. And so equity has to do with uh, reparations and leveraging of capital and all kinds of stuff. That What's amazing is that the Paris Agreement actually wrote that in to the Paris Agreement and everybody signed off on it. I, I still find that rather stunning. And, and that comes down to a group of a few hundred diplomats who met in Paris and, and worked out that a treaty under enormous pressure from the failure in Copenhagen, the failure at Rio. Uh, and so they were trying to write something that might work better for the whole world. And they did a damn good job. Uh, the question is, can we live up to it? Well, I don't know about our listeners, but I'm putting you in charge of solving all the world's problems. Because, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You get my vote. That's all you need to take charge. Thank you so much. Yeah, Rob, it's a pleasure. Yeah. And um, and, and um, I want to end by saying, you know, I'm just a novelist, uh, uh, but a science fiction novelist is in a good position to try to um, try to judge these situations. And and I would urge people I can see the vibe on this book that essentially it's, it's being recommended more or less like you would recommend uh, castor oil 100 years ago like, okay, quite repulsive, but good for you. So you better hold your nose and swallow it. But I, I just want to urge people to give it a try as a novel, like any other novel. And, and uh, I think it, I think it works on that level too, mainly because of uh, Mary and Frank. And, you know, as a novelist, I care about that level, maybe most of all, which is a little bizarre to say after this whole hour, but um, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. I mean, it works on all levels. I think it's a great book and I highly recommend it. And look, you know, in a hundred years, it'll it'll be like Moby Dick. Everyone will be reading it or not reading it and complaining about it. But there'll be a few people devotedly reading it every summer in Maine and it'll be on everyone's bookshelf and everyone will know. Everyone will know your name and they'll be living in a greener, happier world. Well, I... I like that thought. I appreciate that thought. So thank you, and um, good luck to everything. Well, and thank you. I've been talking to Kim Stanley Robinson about the Ministry for the Future, which came out from Orbit in October. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed the show, it would be lovely if you gave us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. I edit the show. 
founder and editor of the New Books Network, Marshall Poe, and co-editor Leanne Wilson keep the network running, and they are responsible for not only this show, but dozens and dozens of other wonderful book podcasts. So please enjoy a good book and eat a good meal and get a good night's sleep, and I'll be with you again soon for a new episode. Thank you.